Martin Luther King Jr., uh, known as a civil rights leader, was first and foremost a Christian and a preacher. His uh, sermons and even his speeches, which were often sermons, were filled with prayer, were filled with words from the prophets, from Jesus, and from the Gospels. This familiar text that I'm going to read to you now is found in the sermon that I'm going to share this morning, I've Been to the Mountain. It is the story of the Good Samaritan found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw the man, he was moved with pity, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he, out, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go. And do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Ah, oh God, uh, unfold your word and your way in us this morning. Reveal to us something new. Something new for our lives. This day. Amen. This morning, I want to share with you a significant part of King's last uh, speech, sermon. It was given on the evening of uh, April 3rd, 1968, the night before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. King had been invited to Memphis by Reverend James Lawson, a Methodist minister. Uh, he has... Uh, He's only a few years older, a few months older than what King would be. He's currently 94 and lives in California, but he has been to Allegheny a couple of times. Um, he continues to be a witness to all of this. I'll, I will just add that. But King had been, been invited to Memphis by Jim Lawson. He'd been invited there to provide leadership and inspiration to a movement to provide uh, Memphis sanitation workers higher wages, safer working conditions and allow them to unionize after two of their co-workers were accidentally crushed to death just a couple of months before. 
So this has been an ongoing, been an ongoing issue in Memphis. Um, all of the sanitation workers were black men, uh, almost entirely, and uh, they had been denied all kinds of rights for just safety at work. And uh, it had gotten, there was, the, there was a major stall in any conversations. And so this was the point when um, there was gonna be a strike to make the point. What we need to understand as history has unfolded around civil rights is that King, until his death, until his violent death, denounced violence. King always took the way of nonviolent resistance. That's what he claimed. That's what he claimed the power of Jesus allows all of us to resist violence by nonviolence. Um, as you hear a portion of the speech this morning, uh, I will remind you that King uses the word man uh, to mean all people, as was you know, the common use of that. Um, he refers at a, at a point to ministers, and of course always uses, because that would have been mostly the way. Um, he includes the word um, he for them. Uh, the entire speech is available in many places, just including YouTube. Um, so I would invite you always to uh, engage with the broader uh, words. So with that. Uh, King had not been feeling well that day, by the way. Um, King had not been feeling well and had not actually planned to go this night. Uh, but he had received a call after everyone had gathered in this, uh, in this church. That's where they gathered in the church. After they gathered in the church, King had received a call from his uh, friend and colleague, Paul Abernathy, who said, we need you to come down. And so King went down, and then after thanking his friend, uh, he begins. Something's happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole human history up to now, and if the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, what age would you want to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on toward the promised land. And in spite of its magnificence, oh, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. I would see Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Euripides and Aristophanes assembled around the Parthenon. And I would watch them as they discussed the great eternal issues of reality. But I wouldn't stop there. I would go on, even on to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through their various emperors and leaders. But oh, I wouldn't stop there. I'd even come up to the day of the Renaissance. And I'd get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for culture and the ascetic life of man. But I wouldn't stop there. I'd even go by way of that man for whom I named in his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked the 95 thesis on the door of the church of Wittenberg. But I wouldn't stop there. I would come up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. 
I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and I'd say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. It's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that in, in men, in some strange way, we are responding. Something is happening in our world. The people are rising up. Another reason I'm happy to live in this period is that we've been forced to the point where we're going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with throughout history. But the demand didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. That's the whole thing this is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protest, in any negative arguments with anybody. We're saying that we're determined to be men, to be people. We are determined to be people. We are saying that we are God's children, and we don't have to live like we've been forced to live. Now, what does all this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. Now, we're going to march again. We've got to march again in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be and force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children suffering here, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with what is right, they're willing to sacrifice for it. There is no stopping point. For victory. I call upon all of you to be with us when we go out on Monday. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction and we're going into court tomorrow to fight this illegal unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. Now if I lived in China or even Russia or any totalian to totalitarian country, maybe I can understand some of this. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they hadn't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly and somewhere I read of the freedom of speech and somewhere I read the freedom of the press and somewhere I read that the greatness of America it's the right to protest for what is right. And so just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We won't let any injunctions turn us around either. We're going on. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me? 
to see all these ministers of the Gospels. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and the aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have some kind of fire shut up in his bones, and whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos and say, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. When somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I want to commend the preachers under the leadership of these noble men. James Lawson, one who's been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for the struggle, but he's still going on fighting for the rights of people. Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyles, I could go on down the list, but time will not permit. But I want to thank them. I want you to thank them because so often preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. But I'm happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder and all its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals. It's all right to talk about the New Jerusalem, but one day God's preachers must talk about New York and a new Atlanta and a new Philadelphia and a new Los Angeles and a new Memphis, Tennessee. That's what we have to do. Let's together develop a dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus. He wanted to raise some questions about vital matters in his life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little bit more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled the question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember, you remember that a Levite and a priest passed him by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administering first aid and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man. This was the great man because he had the capacity to project the I into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to determine why that priest and that Levite didn't stop. At times we say they were busy going to a church meeting an ecclesiastical gathering. And they had to get down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was religious law that said one who was engaged in a religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body for 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then, we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem or down to Jericho 
but rather to organize a Jericho Road Improvement <laughs> Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt it was better to deal with the problem from the causal route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effort. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. For you see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for the parable. It's winding and meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start in Jerusalem, which is about 12,000 miles or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level. It's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it became known as the Bloody Pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite look over at the man on the ground, ground and they wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he'd been robbed or hurt in order to seize them over there and lure them. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But when the Good Samaritan came by, he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all those hours I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? Let us rise up tonight with greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination let us move on these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I'd written. And while sitting there autographing the books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, Neck, yes. In the next minute I felt something beating on my chest and before I knew it I'd been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to the Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, that's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me after the operation, and my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out to move about the hospital in a wheelchair. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in from all over the states, the world, the kind letters. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. 
I received one from the president and vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I forget what that said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl who was a student at White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter and I'll never forget. It simply said, Dear Dr. King, I'm in ninth grade at the White Plains High School. While it should not matter, I'd like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply, I'm simply writing to say that I'm so happy you didn't sneeze. I want to say tonight, I want to say that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze. Because if I sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting, that they were really standing up for the best of the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great swells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of the Independence and Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, deciding to straighten their backs up. And wherever men and women straighten their backs up, they're going somewhere. Because a man can't ride your back unless it's bent. If I'd sneezed, I wouldn't have been there in 1963 when the black people of Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of a nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I'd sneezed, I wouldn't have a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had. If I'd sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. And if I had sneezed, I wouldn't be here in Memphis to see this community rally around those brothers and sisters who are so suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they're telling me now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning and we got started on the plane. There were six of us. And the pilot came over the public address system and said, we're sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on board. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check it out carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got to Memphis, and some began to say that there's threats or talks about the threats. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. <laughs>